Bibles now, if you would, and let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. We've just finished one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, and that's Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6. And I don't guess that was any secret to anybody here that I really love that verse. And uh, I think it's a very important verse. Uh, I think it's a verse that all of us need to really let it sink down into our hearts and into our souls. If you're uh, depressed about things, if you, if you need peace, you need comfort, you're, you're concerned about safety, all you have to do is just return to that verse and read that one over and over because the Lord has surely promised us that he's going to carry out his work in our lives. So that's a good thing to realize. God chose you in the past. He's saved you in the present. He called you in the present. And then he promises that he's going to bring you through this life to his goal. And that is that you will see him finally face to face. Well, this evening, we're going to go a little bit further in our study, and we're going to look at verses number 7 through 11. And this is where Paul says a prayer for the Philippians. Now, we've uh, studied Paul's prayers before. In Ephesians, in both chapters 1 and 3, we looked at Paul's prayers, and uh, they are really unique prayers, especially in one way. His prayers are different than our prayers because you surely have to notice this, his ended up in the Bible. I mean, his are written down as the holy words of Scripture. And so that's going to make his prayers different from any of ours. And so we know that because of that, there's nothing frivolous in a prayer that he prays. There's nothing mixed into it, uh, any kind of filler, so that he'll just have something to say. These are the words of the Holy Spirit, and they have meaning to us. So we're going to study a little bit about Paul's prayer tonight. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's Word, we're going to look at this prayer. It's in verses 9 through 11, but we're going to start at verse number 7 because that tells us what Paul is thinking about. And that's, this is the thing that prompts his prayer. Verse number 7 says, Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, think this of you all, that must mean that Paul was a southerner. He come from southern Israel, I guess. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have in my heart, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of, of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for everyone who's come to uh, hear your word. We just ask you, Lord, that you'd open up this prayer of Paul's. Help us to understand, give it meaning to us. And Lord, we pray that we'll be enriched from having studied your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. A careful study of Paul's prayers will reveal that there's a lot of theological content. If these are the words of the Holy Spirit, then we could fully expect that Paul would say some things that contain great theology. I was speaking, oh, a few weeks ago, I guess it was, to one of the new members of our church, and we were talking about prayer, and one of the things he said was, is I really like the prayers in Brian Baptist Church because they're not these long-out, long, drawn-out, boring prayers. Now, that wasn't exactly what he said, but that's the gist of what he said. And I knew exactly what he meant because sometimes uh, people get up and they pray publicly and they just seem to want to throw everything but the kitchen sink into their prayers. And uh, so sometimes those prayers can be very, very long and drawn out. 
And I suppose that people may do that because they think that a long prayer surely has to be better than a short prayer. But it's not really the length of a prayer that matters. Here, here's a very short prayer that Paul prays. What matters is the content of that prayer. And so when we get up to pray publicly, we just don't go into all the things that, that we would say at our private prayers. The point I really want to make here, though, is that, that sometimes prayers can be very theological. If you've ever been to a Bible conference with a lot of preachers, you're going to hear some theological prayers. One thing about Bible conferences is that there are, there are preachers that are called on to preach at Bible conferences, and there are preachers that are called on to pray. And the preachers that are called on to preach don't do the praying because they're going to be preaching. And the ones that are called on to pray don't do the, do the, do the preaching because they're going to be praying. So the ones that don't get called on to preach, what they do is they kind of circumvent the process and they preach a message inside the prayer. And you don't know how many times that I've, that I've been to places like that and the poor old preacher that doesn't get asked to preach, he's got a prayer that he's going to say what he's got to say and get everybody to hear it because it's going to be very theological. Well, Paul had very different reasons uh, for the theological uh, aspects of his prayers. What he's doing here, he's speaking Holy Spirit-inspired words. Now, every word that we read in the Bible is inspired by God, even the things that aren't true. Now, don't get excited about that and say, well, there's things that Pastor Smith says there's things in the Bible that aren't true. Well, that's actually what I did say. There are things in the Bible that aren't true. Whenever Satan speaks, much of what he says isn't true. And if you remember Job, when his counselors came to reason with him, they said a lot of things to him that that weren't true. Now, it's true that Satan said the things, and it's true that they said the things, but what they said isn't true. Did you get all of that? Okay. Well, the writers of Scripture wrote down exactly what God wanted us to know, and some of the things he wanted us to know were statements that people made that weren't true. But when you read Paul, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so what he says, uh, it's going to be true. Whatever advice that he gives and whatever theology that he lays down, this is absolutely going to be good for us and it's absolutely true. Paul's prayer here breaks down into really a a a, a nice three-point message for us. There are three things that Paul talks about here. Uh, Paul is praying for the progress of the Philippians. He wants to uh, see that they come into the perfection that as God's working into their, in their lives. But as God does that, as he, as he brings us through life, and as he works all things out for our good, and as, he, as he's working in us, he has a means by which he brings us to the place that he wants us to be. So we're going to look at that in the prayer tonight. Now, first of all, I want us to, to look at the advancement of love. Often we call John the apostle of love. And we say that because, of course, he self-describes as the apostle or the disciple that Jesus loved. But you probably noticed in the sermons that I preached from 1 Corinthians that Paul had a lot to say about love. He doesn't very often stray far from grace, but he doesn't stray far from love either. That's a common theme for the apostle Paul. Well, we would expect that as Paul begins the prayer that, that he's praying... We would expect that this would be a prayer that would first start out with his needs. What is it that's going on in his life? Well, there he is. He's in prison. 
Uh, Most likely there's a guard that's chained to him that goes everywhere that he goes. He doesn't have freedom. And so we might expect that the very first thing that Paul would do, that he would say, "Now, now God, here's what I need. I need to get out of this prison. I need to get out there so I can preach. I need to, to get away from here. You need to set me free. And if we think about Philippians as a book that does talk about peace and contentment and happiness and how as a Christian you can achieve those things, then surely if we're going to be happy, those physical things, things that are going on in our lives, those things have to be taken care of. And we would think that's what's going to bring us happiness. But as Paul prays this prayer, his focus is not on himself. His focus is on the Philippians. And he wants to show them how they can achieve this happiness by things that are outside of themselves, by just looking and and taking in everything that God has for them. So he starts here with this prayer. He begins the prayer with love. Now, I need to go back to what we studied in 1 Corinthians to describe this love to you again, because this love is the number one Christian virtue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31, Paul calls it there a more excellent way. Love is the best of all of our Christian virtues. That's the identifying characteristic of God's people. Jesus said this. This is your mark. It's your identifier. This is how people will know that you're truly a child of God, and that's the love that you have for me and the love that you have for one another. Well, what does Paul say about this love? He says he wants it to go on. How's it going to go on? Well, he's going to show us here that the more that you learn about Christ, the more that you know of him, the deeper that your love is going to be. The closer that you get to Christ, the better you understand this whole, whole issue of love. So we could say then, first of all, that progress in love is according to education. He says here that your love will abound more and more in knowledge. Whenever you see the word knowledge in the Scripture used this way, it's not talking about a study course where you're going to learn about history. It's not talking about science and and how you'll get a better understanding of math and physics. God's not really too much concerned about that kind of knowledge. What he's speaking here is of knowledge of spiritual things, and in particular, it means knowledge of the doctrines of God's Word. Knowledge in all these other areas, that's okay in its realm, But the unfortunate thing is that most people seek for secular knowledge. They want to find out all these other things, and they care very little at all about spiritual knowledge. If you remember, this is what Paul said about the Greeks. He said the Greeks seek after wisdom. And certainly they were great philosophers and the greatest thinkers of all time. But they weren't interested in spiritual things. When anything spiritual came along, it would uh, maybe amuse them or pique their interest just a little bit, but they weren't really interested in God. If you remember when Paul was on Mars Hill and he was speaking to the Athenians, he he was talking to them about a God that they ignorantly worshipped. They'd set up an idol there to God. They didn't even know who he was. And so Paul began to talk to them about that God. Well, they were interested, all right but not interested really in the spiritual aspects of it. I want you to listen to what we read in Acts 17, beginning at verse 18. It says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. 
And we're going to talk a little bit about that when we get into 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection and how foolish that seemed to be to the Greek people. They absolutely did not want to believe in a resurrection because they thought that the material body was, was inherently evil. So you never would want to come out of the grave in a physical body. Verse 19, And they took him and brought him unto the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So do you see what I mean? They're not really interested in the spiritual aspect of this, not, not who this real God is. What they're interested in is this another thing that we can debate about. And will this entertain us? Will, can we philosophize about this? That's what they're most interested in. And right here in Roner Park, 2,000 years later, things have not changed very much. The Apostle Paul says here, For your peace, for your contentment, for proper love displayed to one another, you must grow in knowledge. You must be educated about God's Word. And when I say that things have not changed very much in 2,000 years, all that we need to do is look at the attendance that we have tonight. Look and see how many people are here. You ever wonder why, why Christians are deficient in their love? You can mark it down to this. Is they just don't know very much about Christ. They don't have all the knowledge that they need. I mean, every week I, I spend time preparing three messages from members of Berean Baptist Church. And on Sunday night and on Wednesday night, less than half of the people attend church. And the reason that we don't love like we ought to, the reason we don't know what we ought to, is because we don't go to church to listen to God's Word as we should. This is an imperative for Christian people. Because where there is, this, is no spiritual knowledge, what happens is there's a preoccupation with everything else in the world. Everything else starts to take over. Whether it's material, whether it's family, whether it's recreation and things like that. Other things will take over when we don't have the proper spiritual knowledge. Now, we notice here that Paul is poor. Paul is in prison. He doesn't have a fancy house. There's no BMW chariot to ride in. He has none of that. But Paul is happy. Why is he happy? Because he says, I know Christ. In chapter 3, verse number 8, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of what? The knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And that's the real secret of progress right there. That's the secret of God uh, completing his work in you. That's to know Christ more fully. It's to be educated about him. Now what knowledge does for us, it produces the holiness that we need. And so we wonder, why, why do Christians have so much trouble living out the holiness in their lives? I mean, what about this relationship that they have with Christ? Why is there so much difficulty there? Why can't they follow Christ in a godly manner? And here it is. The problem is knowledge. The lack of knowledge just, just, and, and the intimacy that we have with Christ, if, if we don't have that, that impedes all the flow of information. It impedes the realization that we need of standards that we ought to live by. Knowing Christ will produce holiness, and God gives us sanctification through that. And so when you know Christ as you should, you don't have to have the preacher stand up and tell you in every service how you ought to dress and how you ought to act. I don't have to tell you the places that you ought to go and the kind of friends that you ought to have. You already know because you know Christ. So it's not a man-made standard that we try to live by, as many have us to think. But you know what happens, though? 
Lots of times what happens is that people who don't intimately know Christ, they misinterpret what I preach to you. They're going to change things around and they really don't understand what's being said. They, they would think like, well, Pastor Smith says that, so that I can wear anything I want to because the Bible doesn't say for me not to wear a bikini and it doesn't tell me not to go and jump into a swimming pool with one-fourth my clothes on with somebody in the opposite sex. The Bible doesn't tell me that I can't do those things. If you think that that's what I mean, then you don't know Christ. You don't know what I'm talking about. You're short on education because inward and outward holiness comes to us by knowing Christ. That's how you know the right thing to do. That, that's, that, that's how you know when you go out in public. You ought to dress decently and look like you should look. It, it's how you know how you ought to talk and how you ought to act. All that comes from this intimate knowledge that we have with Christ. So you don't have to go check the rule book this week and see, well, is it all right to, to wear slacks or am I supposed to wear culottes this week? You know, I think probably the worst thing that was ever invented was culottes. Not because culottes are inherently wrong. I'm not saying that at all. But what it has become, it's a sign, it's a badge of holiness for people. And so now if you wear the culottes, then all of a sudden you must be holy. Well, folks, you you can wear culottes all day long. You can wear them when you go to bed at night. And your heart can be just as black as coal. That's not what changes things. What we need to do is get rid of all the props, the things that are propping up our holiness. Get rid of that and know Christ. Now, some of you are going to go away tonight and you're going to say, well, Pastor Smith said that culottes are wrong. Please try to understand the principle that I'm trying to get get across, all right? To know him is to love him, and when you love him, you'll follow his commands. And so the more that you love Christ, the more that you're going to love others. And Jesus said, by this love, you'll know, they'll know that you are my disciples. Well, there's a second aspect of growing and advancing in love. The second thing here is to advance according to discretion. Discretion means the ability to judge wisely and objectively. Paul says here that your love may abound in knowledge and in judgment. So when you judge correctly, that's what discretion is all about. That's judging wisely and objectively. So what does Paul mean by that? Well, I want you to turn a few pages over in your Bible, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And uh, you'll recognize these scriptures as soon as we start to read them. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, the subject here is discernment, judging correctly. And if you look at verse number 21, it says, Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Prove all things. Now, here's the idea behind that. The context of what Paul is talking about is the evaluation of doctrine. He's speaking here about the evaluation of the times. And particularly, he was talking about the second coming of Christ. He wanted the people to be prepared for Christ's coming. But there's a lot of misinformation out there. A lot of things that are being passed around. A lot of doctrines out there that aren't true. And so Paul says you need to prove all things. And what he means is, you need to sift through all these different things that you hear. Evaluate what you hear by God's Word. When my wife and I go to the grocery, sometimes we'll buy fruit. And when I'm standing there in the fruit section, I may pick up a a melon or some kind of fruit, and and I'm, I'm feeling around on that and looking for all the bad spots in it. And when I find something bad in that piece of fruit, I lay it aside and I go to another one and I start on that one and I find the one that suits me, the one that's right. 
And this is exactly what Paul means here. Prove it. Examine it. Hold fast to that which is good. And so, use discretion is what he's telling us. If there's some practice that doesn't feel right, that it just doesn't seem to be right, put that aside. Don't do that thing. If there's some kind of doubt in your mind by something that you would do, don't do that. Just put it aside. Choose things that will not wound your conscience and will not cause others to stumble. You may remember, hopefully, a, a few weeks ago, maybe, I think it was maybe in May, this would be a few months ago, that uh, I was preaching on Sunday morning about this subject. Is everything black or white? And what I was talking about is there are many things that go on. There are many areas that are gray areas. There, there are things that just aren't spoken about in the Bible. So you're not going to find a scripture that says you can do this and you can't do that. There are a lot of gray areas. So what you have to do, you have to learn how to discern in the gray areas. You have to learn how to choose whether something is right or wrong. That's part of proving all things. Well, there were some tests that I gave on that Sunday morning. I gave you five different tests that you could tell whether something was right or wrong and whether you ought to do it. I'm going to run through those right quickly. And if you don't get them all again, don't worry about it. You can ask me later and I'll give it, I'll give it to you. But the first one is the edification test. And the question is, will it build up my Christian life? Is this something that's going to hinder my service for Christ? Or is it something that will help my service for Christ? And you determine uh, which one that is. And if it won't help you, then don't do it. The second thing that we talked about was the example test. Is it an example to other believers? If I do this, could I say to somebody else, well, you can do what I did because it's a good example to follow. And if it's not a good example, then don't do it. The third thing was the evangelism test. If I do this, will it draw people to Christ or will it turn people away? And there are many things that you do that actually will turn people away from Christ. And so if it doesn't meet the evangelism test, if it's not drawing people to the Lord, if it turns them away, then don't do that. Number four was the exaltation test. Does it glorify God? And isn't that what every Christian is designed to do? Glorify God. And so if there's something that you want that doesn't glorify Him, don't do it. The fifth one was the embarrassment test. Would I be ashamed to be found doing this when Jesus comes back? And if you're doing something, you say, I would not want Jesus to catch me doing this if he were to appear today, then you can be sure that's not something that you ought to do. So when you have the gray areas, you apply the test. And if it fails any one of these tests, you cast it aside. So this is what Paul is saying here. Sift through it. Throw the bad things away and hold on to the things that are good. Now let's go on though there in that next verse in 1 Thessalonians, uh, verse number 22. It says, abstain from all appearance of evil. I know you've heard that verse before. A person who is discerning, a person who has discretion, one who's advancing in his love, he doesn't even want to get close to something that looks like it's evil. There are many things that you can do that are not really wrong in themselves. I mean, it wouldn't be wrong under certain circumstances. But you can do the very same thing in other circumstances that people will see that, they'll take it wrongly, and it would be wrong for you to do it. Now, this is one of the hardest areas that you have to deal with because you can't control what other people think. So how are you going to get over something like this? Well, this is where you have to be a highly trained individual growing in knowledge. 
Because that's the kind of person who can look ahead. They can foresee all the bad consequences that could be there if you do it. So you're never going to get there unless you know Christ in an intimate way. So this is very important for Christians. Growing in knowledge and learning about judgment, advancement in love. Now let's go on here. We have another couple of points to cover. The second one is the judgment of works. Look at verse number 10. This is back in Philippians chapter 1. That ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. This next part that Paul's talking about is the quality of the works that they have for Christ. There are two characteristics, two great characteristics that are indicative of godly works. The first one is sincerity. They should be sincere in their motives. That means there's no pretense in it. There's no hint of hypocrisy in what we do. A Christian person ought to be a person of integrity. There are many people that really work hard in the church. I mean, there are people that will be here. They are busy, busy, busy about everything that's going on. They're really workhorses when it comes to the Lord's work. They're very busy, but their busyness sometimes is not for the right motive. I'm glad that we don't see much of this in Brian Baptist Church, but there, there are places where, where people want to serve because they like the recognition. If they can get recognition from somebody and get patted on the back for what they've done, then that's what they're really in the work for. And so sometimes church work can be hypocritical. So even there are times when a, when a person who just works, 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 and works his fingers to the bone in the church is really not even a saved person. This, this is what happened with Jesus and the Pharisees. I mean, and they were a really good example of people who turn out religious work, but it's not for the right motive. Now, this is exactly what Paul is referring to here. It's this kind of hypocrisy. And he says, you need to be sincere. And he directs it right at this very thing, works that are done for the wrong motives. The word sincere, that, that's a very interesting word. Actually, where this comes from is that back in the Roman days and uh, in Rome and in many other places, they used to produce very, very uh, uh, fine pottery. And the finest pottery was always a very thin type of pottery. Not like you have in Native American culture where you have these big, thick pieces of pottery, but very expensive, fine pottery was very thin. Well, the problem with this very thin pottery is that in the firing process, thin cracks could develop in it. And so if you didn't handle it right, if you, if you didn't do exactly what you're supposed to do in the firing process, then you'd get all these little thin cracks. Well, what they would do many times is that they would look at that, the, the potter would know that those cracks were there, and he would take a dark wax, and he would fill in those cracks, but then he'd take paint, and he would paint over it. Now, a reputable merchant would never sell a person a piece of pottery with a crack in it. Now, those cracks were not visible to, to normal, I mean, just normally looking at the, at the pottery in the store. What you had to do is you had to hold it up to the light, and you had to look very closely, and you could see those thin black lines that were in the pottery, and that indicated there was a crack. Well, the reputable merchants were not going to sell somebody a piece of pottery with a crack in it. So what they would do, they would put their stamp on the, on, the, on the pottery, sealing it and saying, this does not have any cracks in it. And the seal said, sine sera, which actually means, the literal interpretation is, without wax. And that's where we get the word. 
That's exactly how a Christian ought to be. When you hold him up to the sunlight of Jesus Christ, there is no hypocrisy in his life. Your motives are right, and whatever you do, you do to serve Christ alone. So it's wonderful here how how Paul just builds on these principles and he tells us that if you do these kinds of things, this will bring contentment in your life. If your life is built upon integrity and sincerity, if you're an honest, forthright person, you'll be a happier person. I know people that build these type of virtues into their lives. I've seen people that do it. And, and you know what? Whenever I hear something bad about that kind of person, when somebody comes with an accusation against them, I dismiss it because I know that there are not people who live their lives that way. I mean, I can think of, I'm not bragging in any way, but I can think in my own family. My, my sister married a man, my brother-in-law, who is the most honest, forthright person I've ever known. She's been married to him for 40 years, and I've never known him to do one single dishonest deed. He absolutely, for the life of him, would never tell you a lie or try to pull one over on you. And that is exactly the way that Christ says for us to live. We're to be very sincere people, sincere in our motives. Now, the second thing that we have here is that we're to be faultless in movement. He says that you may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ. That means be faultless, be blameless. That's one of the great things about the personality of Jesus. Remember when he was brought before Pilate? Three different times Pilate said about him, I find no fault in this man. The Jews accused him of many things, but they couldn't find any fault either because the thing they had to do was to hire false witnesses. There was no fault in him. Well, how many of us, if we were put into the same place where Jesus was, that someone would be able to say about us, I find no fault in this person? Well, really deep down, that can't be said about any of us because there's none of us that don't have faults. But we thank the Lord for this, all of those faults and all of the blame, everything that's wrong. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, it's all been placed upon him. He takes care of all of that, and he does away with that. The Bible teaches that we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. All the blame's been taken away. And so the argument when Paul talks about things like this is is not that in yourself you could be blameless, not, not in yourself that you could have no faults, but if Christ has cleansed you from your sins, if he's done a work in your heart, then surely you ought to be striving every single day to be a person who has no faults. A person who has no blame in him. In Ephesians, Paul says, this is exactly what God has chosen you for. He says in Ephesians 1 verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world for this purpose, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So that's exactly where the whole thing is heading. The good work that's begun in us by our salvation, is headed toward that goal to be holy and blameless before him in love. The exact same sentiment is is expressed right here in our text verses, but in different words. Sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. What that means is that we're headed for a final judgment. One of these days, we're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And what Paul is doing here is preparing us for that day. The day of Christ means the end. That's when Christians stand before a holy God and they give an account of their lives and of their works. And Paul does not want any Christian to come down to that day unprepared for that time. 
So he gives advice. He, he makes prayers. He gives exhortations. He, he, he does it all. Encourages people. Because that day is coming. You're going to stand before God. And so when we do stand before God, we want to have works that are sincere in their motives, certainly. We want to be faultless in everything that we've done so that God can look at us and instead of burning the works up, he gives us reward. So that's why we're encouraged to live our lives in such a way that we are faultless and we're never a stumbling block before others. Now, that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22. Why he says it, abstain from all appearance of evil. Follow that advice and you won't stumble. And neither will you cause anyone else to stumble. Now, there's one other part in the prayer. There's the advancement of love and this judgment of works. Then finally, what he does in the prayer is the extalment of God. Point by point, Paul comes down to the only reason that he does anything he does. And that's for the glory of God. Verse number 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Now, let's quickly fi- finish this up with, this, with a couple of points. The first one is that we are to be filled with fruit. Fruit in the Bible refers to the works of a believer. We've been called to serve God. So we're called to obey his commandments, to carry out all the work that he's given us to do. We're to do works of righteousness. Most of us are too busy with other things to be concerned about works of righteousness. Rarely do you find Christians that are actually filled with the fruits of the Spirit. But that doesn't mean we're any less responsible to live that way. The fruits of the Spirit, some of them are listed in Galatians chapter 5. You should know these very well. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, let me show you how we can tie fruits in with this whole picture that we're talking about. Most fruit is produced on trees. If you take a trip down I-5 and go into the Central Valley, you will see acres upon acres and field after field of fruit trees, all kinds of different fruit trees. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, if you look at those verses there in Psalms, they sound very strikingly similar to what we've just talked about tonight. He says, this man... The righteous man, what does he do? He meditates day and night in God's word. He reads, he studies it, and what would that produce in him? It produces education. That's what we started talking with, education. He reads and studies God's word, he gets education, so he gets knowledge of God. What does the knowledge produce in him? The intimate fellowship that he needs with Christ, which in turn, when you have intimate fellowship, you get love out of that. And when you have love, the next thing that you're going to do is produce fruit. So it all ties in here together. Isaiah wrote, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. And isn't that exactly where we say that we're headed to glorify God? 
This is what Paul says it's all about, to glorify God, glorify Jesus Christ. They might be glorified. So Paul talks about the glory of God's work, glory uh, for God, and sincere work will always glorify God. Now, one last point. We're filled with fruit, and we're also to be made like the Maker. So all of the preparation, all of these things, all the prayer, all the encouragement, all of it is that we might be like Christ. That's what he chose us for. That's what he called us for. That's what he justified us for. The purpose is to be like Christ. Now let's step back here one more time, and let's think about this theme that we find in Philippians. The theme in Philippians is joy, it's happiness, it's encouragement, peace, and contentment. Whenever there are times of troubles, when there are things that are going wrong, when there are discouragements, that's what Philippians addresses. And how would we, how would we deal with those things? Who would we look to when we need to deal with those things? Some people say, well, look to Paul. He lived for him. He did that. But that's not what Paul would say. Paul would say, look to Christ. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so whenever you're discouraged, when you're down, the thing to do is just stop right there and look at the author and the finisher of our faith. The Bible says he saw the joy that was set before him. The joy that's set before us is that we're going, one day going to see him. Just like the songwriter said, it's going to be worth it all when we see Jesus. So everything that you go through, it will be worth it. Faith is finally going to end in sight. And so every wrong that's happened, every trouble in your life, every sorrow, someday is going to be nothing but a very far off distant memory because we're going to see Christ. So that's Paul's prayer. He says, you began in Christ. You need to progress in Christ. And what he, I think, is pointing out to us is that your initial salvation is not all that it is. That's not the end of it. You, you were called out or you were chosen in eternity past. You're, you're being saved right now. You're called for holiness to God. And from eternity past to eternity future, all of this is in the hand of God. There's no reason to be discouraged. And that's what Paul is praying about. And we'll see it more as we go through the book of Philippians. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you tonight for what we learn from your word. We would just pray, Lord, that we would see as we go through Philippians all the things that Paul endured. But he never points to himself. He always gives us the idea that these things work out because that's what you intended for us to go through, that we might glorify you and we might become stronger for you. Lord, help us in our witness every day. Help us to look at the things that we're not sure sometimes whether we ought to do or, or should do. And, Lord, you'd show us the correct way. Help us to be discerning. Help us to determine how can we best live for you because we know that's the way that brings happiness. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.